Hi everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host Jen Galler. In this episode, I talk with Stephen Lester, who is a toxicologist and the science director at the Center for Health, Environment and Justice, CHEJ. We speak about the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment, where 38 of its 150 cars derailed while carrying a variety of hazardous chemicals on February 3rd. A few days after the train cars derailed, the company Norfolk Southern was afraid of a bigger explosion and decided to dump and burn the five cars carrying vinyl chloride. The burning of this leads to dioxins in the air, soil, water, and farm animals there. Dioxin is the name given to a group of persistent, very toxic chemicals that share similar chemical structures, and dioxin is not deliberately manufactured. It is the unintended byproduct of industrial processes that use or burn chlorine. Dioxin exposure can have serious environmental and health effects, such as cancer, reproductive damage, developmental problems, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, infertility in adults, impairment of the immune system, and skin lesions. The high exposure to this particular chemical puts the community at high risk, but also has the potential to travel through the air and water and have an effect on the produce and animals we consume as it is in the soils. Norfolk Southern and the EPA have been denying and delaying testing for this. Stephen, along with the community, have been putting pressure on them to do accurate and timely testing. Stephen also got invited by the community to attend a public meeting and is in contact with residents on the ground there. We speak about their concerns and if the area will ever be safe again. To contact and connect with Steven will be in the show notes below. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so hi everyone. I'm with Steven Lester, who is the science director at CHEJ. And just starting out, could you talk about the lead up and how the train derailment near East Palestine, Ohio went and I guess just the beginning of that? Okay, this good starting question because it sort of sets the groundwork for, for my involvement and sort of what I'm experiencing up there. It was February 3rd of this year when a train with 150 or so cars was traveling eastbound through Ohio, and there was a problem with a bearing in one of the wheels on the tr- one of the trains, one of the tanker truck, and um, that wheel ended up falling off and causing a derailment just outside of a town called East Palestine in Ohio, which is very close. I think it's only a few miles from the Pennsylvania border. And so when that train derailed, there were 11 or 12 uh, chemical tanker cars, five of which contained vinyl chloride. Other chemicals included were vinyl acetate, acrolein, and a host of other chemicals. Uh, There was some PVC on the train as well. And because of the bearing on the wheel, there was some fire started on the train. Uh, there have been varying s- claims, if you will, but when that fire started, I actually saw a video of the train moving towards East Palestine, hadn't even gotten there, and there was already a, a flames and coming out from under the train and, and some fire on the train. But there's not been, that's not been verified. I don't know if that actually was the case. But in any case, when the train derailed, there was a fire. Tankers had caught fire at that point, and there was concern about whether the 
tanker cars containing vinyl chloride might explode. And there was an ongoing conversation between the company and the local fire chief and a few other folks who, who were called in to try to decide what to do. And what was decided was they would empty, they would empty the vinyl chloride tankers in a ditch along the side of the train and intentionally burn the, the chemicals. In retrospect, there's been lots of question about why that was done. And one fire chief from Youngstown, Ohio, about 10 miles away, who's now retired, but had been fire chief for 39 years, said in all his time, he's never heard of anybody dumping a load like that to avoid an explosion and then putting it on fire. And, and there's been lots of questions about whether that was the right thing to do or not. And then just last week, actually, one of the fire chiefs involved testified that in his conversations with Norfolk Southern, they had agreed to dump an empty one tanker. And he was shocked when it ended up being five. Nobody had told him and he was just confused by why that happened. So there's been lots of speculation as to why that turned out that way. But what that did when they burned the vinyl chloride, it had created this enormous black cloud. And it generated dioxin, which is one of the most toxic chemicals ever tested. And that toxic cloud traveled through the community. And that's where the issue today is, is was dioxin generated, which in my opinion, there's no doubt that it was. And where did it go? And where is it settled? And how? what risk does it pose to the people who live there? Yeah, exactly. Wow. And so when they dumped this and just the train tracks in general, how close was this to people's homes and community there? Yeah, the center of the town is a little less than a mile away. And the the area where the actual derailment was uh, on the outskirts of the town. So there were a few folks pretty close to the fire. I mean, one woman that I, I had talked to talked about how she just jumped out of bed when she heard the, the loud explosion when the train derailed and all the sound that would come from all those trains smacking into each other. So it's, it was pretty close. I mean, some people were evacuated immediately from their homes. The police went through and there was about a mile radius where initially uh, everybody was woken up because I, I think the train wreck was in the early morning hours. So people were woken and asked to leave because of concerns about initially the risk of explosion. And so two days later, when a decision made to dump the chemicals into the ditch and burn them in the ground, and so when they did that, some people moved back in after the, the immediate risk didn't seem to be as imminent. And though three days later, they evacuated a broader area going out as far as two miles uh, during the, the, the intentional burn. Wow. And so do trains carrying these types of chemicals usually go through residential areas like this or what was that? Yeah, yes, they, they do. Um, okay. And so that's a, a sad reality of the risks that people who unknowingly, you know, like in this town, people just, they know there's a train going through all the time and trains go through there three, four times a day. So they're quite used to that. But people aren't aware of which tankers on the train might be toxic and, and people just don't understand the risk that this kind of thing poses. Was it the train carrying the chemicals idea to just dump everything there and burn it? Or whose, I guess, yes. idea? Okay, yeah. Yes, Norfolk Southern is the company that runs the rail system that was responsible for this. And 
it was completely their decision to do that. And uh, there's been lots of speculation that they did this primarily to set up a situation where their trains could run again quickly. Mm. Um, oh, it, wow. This was a major transportation corridor where this train had this accident occurred if they had to like transfer the chemicals from the tankers to a a stable tanker or or truck that was loaded in it would take several days if not a week if not even longer given all the questions and concerns so that would have cost the company god knows how much money i don't know what they make on a daily basis but burning this thing allowed them to get back in business basically within 24 hours maybe 48 at the most and so they were trains were running through that area there very, very soon after that accident. And the ground was still highly contaminated uh, with the chemicals that were dumped there, uh, you know, because they were a total of 11, I think 11 tankers that were involved in the accident. And all of them were, to my understanding, were, were dumped in the ground there. Certainly five tankers of vinyl chloride were that I'm certain of. Wow, that's awful. So you got invited to attend some meetings in the community and are in contact with some of the residents who live there. So could you talk about what went on in those meetings and what concerns people have? And yes, Um, I I feel honored and privileged in some ways to have been invited to be a part of what's happening there. I was invited by an organization called River Valley Organizing, who is connected to People's Action Institute, which is the organization that CHEJ is a project of and that we merged with five, six years ago. And so uh, when there was a, lots of concerns got started raising very quickly, especially after the fire, and people were having all kinds of reactions to the fire. They were having runny noses and irritation and headaches and allergic type reactions of varying kinds. So people were, were feeling bad, those closest to the fire, most particularly. And so there were lots of questions about, you know, how is, you know, what's happening to me and what's happened to my health. So with all these questions on the table, they were looking for someone who they could turn to, to help try to answer some of those questions. So I attended a meeting on February 23rd, which was a Thursday, I guess, you know, maybe a month ago now. And it was the first community meeting organized by the community. I think there'd been one prior meeting that I think EPA had organized. And in the meeting I attended, there were probably 250 people in the audience. The room was packed and, you know, people were highly emotional, very angered in some cases. There were probably six of us who were part of a panel and we were there simply to answer questions. I mean, all we did from the front of the room was just sort of identify who we were, what we were involved in, what our sort of backgrounds and science connections were to what was going on. And so, uh, and that took maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And for the next two hours after that, people just asked questions and we answered the best ability that we could. So do you kind of paint a picture of what kind of community East Palestine is? Yeah, sure. It's it's a pretty much a rural community. A lot of farms in the area. The town is uh, 4,700 people. It's pretty isolated. The next town is maybe five miles away. And then you, you get to East Liverpool, which is maybe 15 miles away, which is a substantially larger community. But it's very rural. It's mostly white folks who are farmers who I think this, the area has been described as Trump country. But of course, something like that is has no relevance at all to what people are going through and what they're experiencing uh, as a result of the accident and the burn. But the people had 
so many of the same questions. And, and one of the, the experiences I've had in my life is that I was involved at the Love Canal Waste Site in upstate New York. It's where I met Lois Gibbs, who was our founding director and, and got involved in working with communities dealing with toxic chemicals. And that was over 40 years ago. And so when I was in that room, hearing people ask these questions and seeing the emotions and the anxiety on people's faces, I, I was having immediate flashbacks to my experiences at Love Canal and to the meetings at Love Canal, where there were just all these fairly honest and very reasonable questions. And people were having a hard time getting any kind of answers from government at any level. That's this case again, only now they have a, a responsible party, the, the Norfolk Southern, the train operator, and, and they're not answering questions either. I mean, there's lots of good words being put out there. North Fork Southern says they're going to stay there as long as they need to. And they're all, you know, trying to help, want to do everything they can to help the community. You know, those are, those are words, but no, the actions are, are, are very different. You know, people are experiencing, for example, those people who were evacuated, you know, initially it was mandatory, but after that they were allowed to stay out. And those people who were voluntarily staying in a hotel, for example, had to pay their hotel bills and submit their bills through with a bunch of forms for reimbursement, which is very cumbersome and very difficult, especially with all the emotions going on. And so the goodwill that the company is, is speaking to is not being experienced by the people in the community. Mm. And so at that community meeting that you attended, what were some of the reoccurring like concerns or questions people had? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest thread of questions were people asking about their health risks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one woman asked, you know, my kids are out playing in the yard. Should I let them do that? You know, um, you know, what about my young baby who's only, you know, not even a year old? You know, what's going to happen to her? You know, my farm animals. I mean, I, one woman talked about being completely enveloped by the black cloud. And, and she was, I think, five miles from the site of the accident. She said she could barely see her hand in front of her face. And she has farm animals and she's worried about what's going to happen to them. And another guy said he was 15 miles from the site and some of the ash residuals fell onto his property. And he's worried about it. He has also farm animals. And because we're getting into growing season soon, the spring crop season and planting season, people are worried, well, should I, should I plant my crop? But the biggest question was about people's health. You know, you know, my kids going to be affected. My health has been affected. And people have lots of symptoms they're reporting, mostly upper respiratory and central nervous system type symptoms in terms of headaches and nausea and not feeling right and, and runny noses and allergic reactions. And so that's happening to everybody, whether, you know, almost everybody in the town. The other thing that's happening, I, I was there approximately two weeks, almost three weeks from when the accident occurred. And there was lots of cleanup going on by the company. When they dumped all the chemicals in the pit, those chemicals ran off into a couple of local creeks that mm -hmm. run through the town. Mm -hmm. And so there was lots of concern about that. 30, 000, I think it was 30,000 fish died on, on one creek as a result of the chemicals that were flowing through there. Oh, my so, God. So there were lots of evidence of the contamination going through there. And then the company was aerating 
the creek, the creek runs right through the town, literally under some of the buildings in the town. And they were aerating the volatile chemicals in the water and putting them into the air. So when I was there, I observed this. I took pictures of this. And there you could smell the chemicals coming out of the water and being put into the air. And there are media people, and there were plenty of media everywhere at that time throughout the town, you know, and they were interviewing each other as much as they were interviewing residents and people on the ground living there. And so you could smell this stuff. And so they were putting it back into the air. So there's continuing exposures occurring throughout the community. And and one woman was telling me she went into town hall, which sits above one of the creeks that run under town. And she said, you can smell the chemicals. She said, there's there's nobody should be in there working. They're, they're being exposed to chemicals throughout their entire time. And while I didn't go in there myself, I believe her. I have no reason not to. And I could smell them everywhere in that town. And so it's it's just a horrendous ongoing situation for the people who are living there. And while some have voluntarily moved out, I mean, there were all kinds of complaints. I mean, nobody likes being out of their home for any length of time. And of course, the company and the EPA is saying we're doing all this testing and everything is fine and people can go back to their homes. There's no evidence of contamination is one of their big quotes. No evidence of, I think they're one of their most common statements is there's no evidence of contamination above levels of concern. And many of you who were involved in toxics, I'm sure have heard something like that, if not those very same words. But what they're not telling people is they're looking for groups of chemicals, something referred to simply as total VOCs, volatile organic chemicals. Well, that's a, a not a bad thing to do if you were, you know, gen- generally seeking s- general ideas of whether the chemicals are there, but it's not appropriate for a situation like this. For example, vinyl chloride, you know specifically that that chemical is in the air. It was in the burn and it's in the river where the creeks that are running through town. You should be specifically measuring for vinyl chloride. EPA did not do that for almost three weeks after the accident occurred before they, and that was because they were taking so much heat from people like me and others who were criticizing them for not testing for vinyl chloride. How can you not do that? And so the testing they did at high detection limits was looking for generic chemicals and the levels were like 50 parts per million. Well, if you have less than that, which is highly toxic, vinyl chloride certainly isn't toxic in the low parts per billion, not million, you would never have known it according to the EPA testing. And of course, the company was just echoing whatever EPA said. So it, it was not a true reflection of the risks people were facing. And the issue I raised, which I'm not sure had been raised certainly very much before I spoke that evening, is I raised the issue of dioxins. And I said that clearly dioxin would have formed. We've learned this from, I mean, dioxin is not a new chemical or a strange chemical that no one knows very much about. It's extensively been studied. Thousands of papers are published every year. EPA went through a 25-year process to try to evaluate the public health risks posed by dioxin. And, and they've still not finished that, not finished the cancer portion of that assessment. Much needs to be looked at and as to why that's the case. So when I said that dioxin would form, and it's one of the most toxic chemicals ever tested. And that's what EPA needs to do next, is they need to be testing the community, the surface soil, the the area around the, and downwind from that explosion. That's where people need to understand what their risks are. So the EPA is now testing for dioxins, or are they testing at yeah. all? 
Okay. Initially, they dismissed completely the dioxin concern. Head of the Region 5 EPA said, well, we can't test for dioxin because we don't know what the background levels of dioxin are. So therefore, we wouldn't be able to compare our results. Well, that is a, is a ludicrous statement. It is totally irrelevant whether you have and know what the background levels of these chemicals are, because you'll know what the risk levels are and you can identify it and you can identify levels of concern, if not toxic levels. And so that's what you worry about. You're not worrying about whether it's at the background range or not. So, you know, because of public pressure, they did agree to do that. I actually wrote an editorial opinion piece that was published in The Guardian about why isn't EPA testing for dioxin. It took about a week, maybe two weeks, I forget exactly. And the punchline in the editorial was, you know, in my opinion, they're not testing for dioxin because they know they'll find it. And if mm. they find it, then they'll have to address it. They'll mm -hmm. have to answer the questions for people. And, and I said, and people deserve that. People need to know that. They can't make informed decisions about their future and their health without knowing whether they've been exposed to this toxic chemical that was clearly created by this intentional burn. So with the train company and then the EPA not doing fully what they should do, is there any kind of independent testing going on? And then kind of going back when the EPA does find, if any, like dioxins, which they will, like what, what are the steps after that? Yeah, good question. I mean, there are a handful of independent researchers from nearby universities, Purdue University is one, University of Pittsburgh is another, that have taken some samples. So there is a, a you know, but dioxin's pretty pricey, pretty expensive to analyze for, to test for. I have not seen any independent testing done so far. The one that I have seen, actually, there's the one, and that was done by the state of Indiana. And initially, when the company was cleaning up, well, they, they just had backhoes in there. And by the way, the workers cleaning up this site were not in any kind of personal protection gear. They mm -hmm. were just guys in their regular work gear. And they wrote a letter to one of the state senators complaining about this. One of the unions they were involved in, I, I saw a letter saying that they complaining because they had all kinds of health problems and they were very worried about why weren't they given personal protective gear and why weren't they really told about what they were dealing with. They were just told to go in, clean it up, start moving this stuff, put it in these dump trucks and take it out of here. Well, anyway, the state of Indiana was one of the, has a landfill, hazardous waste landfill where they were taking some of the stuff to. And so they wanted to analyze some of the samples of the soil that they were receiving and they did and they looked for dioxin because they knew that it would be there because of the burn. Three samples they took. The highest sample they got was 700 parts per trillion of dioxin. And 1,000 parts per million is the level they evacuated the entire town of Times Beach, Missouri. So while it didn't exceed that number in, one, in this one you know, grab sample coming from the waste that was already collected from this site, it does pose serious questions about what is the actual concentration of this chemical in the community where people are living. And so it, it supported and verified that A, it's there, and B, it's there in substantial quantities. And so it's not in background levels, it's in substantial quantities. And, and so, you know, that also helped push the EPA to help decide, okay, we need to do this. And so they, they now have asked a company to do this testing. So the company who's responsible for this train accident is in charge of developing a plan for sampling dioxin in the neighborhood. 
and I've seen this plan and I've written comments on this plan, they're going to select the, where they're going to take their samples from by walking around the area that's been impacted and looking for evidence of dust or contamination. I have never seen anything like that as a plan for testing and selecting soil sample locations. I've I, I been doing this for over 40 years. I've never seen anybody say, okay, we'll walk around and look for places to sample. It's not professional. That's not typical. It's completely unconventional and it's highly subjective. Mm -hmm. And so when the company responsible for the cleanup comes up with a subjective, oh, we'll test here, but not there approach, it just raises all kinds of questions about, you know, honesty, reliability, whether you can trust the results. And the other thing that they have not disclosed is what detection limit will they use for the analysis that they're going to do. You need to find dioxin in the parts per trillion, very, very low part per trillion level. It's not clear that they will be doing that. And they're not disclosing that information. I mean, maybe they'll tell somebody if you ask them that point blank, but it's not clear. And so... Um, we don't know. They are in the process of doing that testing now. They are not waiting for any input from the community. They're just moving forward. Their idea of public communications and public involvement is to put things on their website with no announcements that it's there. Wow. So, so they're, yeah, not getting the information out to people either or testing accurately. What are the other like trickle down effects from this? Because you said it's you know, in the soil, in the water, and in the air. So like, how far could these go? And even with farm animals farming? Yep. And so how far could this? It could go, go quite a distance. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know if it can go hundreds of miles, because there's all these uncertainties, things we don't know. But it can go 10s of miles for sure. I mean, one person has already testified that they've seen evidence at 15 miles away. Dioxin will travel with the wind. People told me I wasn't there, but people have said it was very windy that day. And you may have seen some people, have, you know, the, the black cloud images have been, you know, in a lot of the news media. So it was enormous. So it would have traveled quite some distance, I'm concerned and worried about. And I think the biggest, you know, one of the things I've put in my letter is they should be testing farm animals, particularly chickens, because chickens mm -hmm. pick in the soil. They're going to, and, and it's, this is what we find in other dioxin contaminated sites, that chickens have high levels of dioxin and they're, so do their eggs. And any animal grazing on grass that where this would have landed would be subject to potential exposures as well. And so you'd want to be testing the milk in these to make sure it's clean and clear. You know, so they have not, proposed to do any of that yet. They've not admitted or acknowledged that that's a concern, but the people have to push for it. Like any community that's been exposed like this, it's up to the community to create the demand for what they want. You know, it goes back to sort of fundamental organizing. I mean, people, scientists can go in there and say, oh, this is wrong or that's wrong, but they're not going to do it because a scientist says it. But if a community that's been exposed and a concern say, hey, look, this scientist is, is saying this should be done. We want that done. We believe that's a good question and we want to hear the answer to that. You need to do that for us. And it's going to take the community getting organized. And they are. I mean, they do have the River Valley Organizing Group helping them to get organized. But the people who live there and are also getting organized and considering forming an organization to address their concerns and to, you know, the, a list of demand is out. Uh, you know, one of them is relocation for people who want it. 
Another is independent testing. Another is, is a call for a scientist of their choosing to work with them and to help them with all of the questions that, and all the work that's being done, the cleanup and the evaluation and the testing. So there's a lot happening. It's happening very quickly. The community is being overwhelmed by people coming in, often well-meaning and offering to help, but the community has, doesn't know where to turn and who to turn to. So it's a very fast-moving, complicated situation. And, you know, I really feel for the people there because they're being, they were victimized when the train occurred, accident occurred, and the burn occurred, and they're getting victimized again by the way the government is handling it, which is just reassuring them that everything is fine when, in fact, there's no evidence that it is, and they're reluctant to do the, the testing that will really help answer some of the questions that people have. Yeah, yeah, it just kind of goes back to people power and then demanding of the government and the corporation. Yeah, they, um, the community has yeah. to hold them accountable. They're the only ones who can really do it. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful they will. Yeah, yeah. I could ask so many questions, but will it ever be safe there again to live? That's a great question. I really can't answer that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. It really will depend on if they ever do the testing that shows where the dioxin is and where it isn't. But what I do know is that every community that I've worked with, and there's not many that have done the testing around dioxin, they did it at Love Canal. They did it at Times, Missouri, and they did it in Pensacola, Florida, in a town there that's dubbed Mount Dioxin that some of you may have heard of. All three of those places are ghost towns today. Mm. Because when you find dioxin, the cancer risk is so great that there's no real solution to removing it other than to scrape the soil. There's no technology that you can go in and detoxify or capture or solidify or encapsulate dioxin in, in place. And so I, I don't know what will happen to this community. It really will depend on the testing. And, and that's right, likely one reason why EPA is reluctant to do the testing. And so is the company, because they know if they do it and do it right, they're going to find it. And that's going to raise all these questions that don't have good answers if you're owner of a company responsible for it. And the same with EPA. I mean, I don't understand EPA's willingness to protect the company. I mean, they don't, Yeah. you know, they, they, they're supposed, their motto and their mission is to protect public health and, it, you know, through exposures in the environment, but they're not doing that. It, it's, it's another sad story of government's failure to, to do what's right. Exactly. Yeah. And people having to push them government to even yes. do yeah. what they should be doing. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 it always falls on the communities and the victims and the people who have been exposed to, to hold these government and the company in this case accountable. It's very important. I can't emphasize that enough that people need to be involved to get involved, to organize and figure out what it is they want and then make sure they can, that they get that. Yeah. One of my last questions is, are there other methods to transport chemicals like this if we should transport them at all? There are a few alternatives, but they're not necessarily better. Mm. Uh, one is example, put them on a truck, but then you have you know a different risk. But it's not nearly as bad with a truck because you have can only put so much on a single truck. And, and one thing that can be done is to reduce the amount of trains carrying toxic chemicals and running through towns. And of course, disclosing to the towns, the fire chief should know that a train with tank, you know, chemical tanker cars is coming through at 11 tonight. Mm-hmm. And there should be some more regulations on 
how those trains travel, how fast they travel, how long they are. Having a train of 151 cars means that you have more weight. It's more difficult to stop. It's less, you know, when you, if you were to have an accident like this, you're more likely to have a catastrophic problem as occurred. Yeah. And then we talked about the community being the ones who really need to tell the government and other officials like what they want and what they need. But if there's any way that people listening could support that, if there is. Well, there on the Hill in Washington, there are a variety of new legislative regulations that are being proposed to address the, the accident. So I guess one thing people can do is to write and contact their congressman and ask them to support these bills that would create safeguards to help reduce, if not eliminate, the, the accident that occurred in East Palestine. Yeah, that's great. And then how can people contact or connect with you if they have questions? Uh, sure, they can certainly reach me through CHEJ through our website chej.org. Um, I'd be happy to talk with folks. You know, the individually, you can reach me at slester at chej.org. That's s l e s t e r at chej.org. Can't promise you I'll respond right away, but I will. You know, as quickly as I can. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to share some of uh, my experiences with the situation in East Palestine, Ohio. Thank you so much to Steven for taking the time to speak with me. The Guardian article and anything else that we talked about will be linked in the show notes below. Thanks for listening and have a good week, everyone.